We're coming up to Easter, and uh, we've started a new series, of, I started a new series on the Incarnation. Uh, Christ coming down and being embodied. You know, the whole concept of Christianity is that we would be like Christ. Yeah. The secret of life is living like him. You know, we are to be him, his body on earth. Now, I could talk a lot more about that, but uh, one of the challenges for us is to find out what he's like. And uh, I've noticed that uh, people who sometimes, who spend a lot of time in the epistles or something like that, they often get what I call the, the pharisaical attitude to things. You know, everything's a rule and a regulation. And, and we can pull out a scripture and we can uh, use it to whatever purpose we want to do. But I find the, the most, the most uh, successful thing to do for the basics, and I'm talking about the basics, I'm not saying, hey, we shouldn't do the epistles, we shouldn't take doctrine, but I think it's a fallacy to take doctrine from the epistles without having looked at the narratives of Christ. I think our theology should come from the narratives. How did Christ live? What would have, I mean, is there a passage there how he uh, lived in this situation? In fact, the book of Acts now, this has been a, quite a challenge in the last uh, probably 20 or 30 years to a lot of well-known theologians uh, and writers of commentaries because they've always taken a theological stance but, and they've said the narratives are just like hi historical stories, but they're not historical stories uh, that's been challenged now and found wanting. They say, hey, no, these, these actually teach you how to live. And in fact, if you want to know how to live, you know, and how to live in situations, the whole Bible is full like, uh, of stories. Yeah, which we call biblical narratives, the Old Testament, New Testament. So I believe that that our theology should start with the, with the life of Christ, with his story. And as we read his story, we begin to see how he lives. Uh, so the question, I guess, we have to ask ourselves, you might not ask it, but I would ask it, uh, and I hope that you will ask it after today. But, you know, well, how do I study a, a biblical narrative? Or how do I study the Scripture? Because you know, we have something that we call hermeneutics. Now, if you haven't been to a first-year Bible college, you wouldn't have done hermeneutics. But hermeneutics means, you know, this, it, it really means the uh, interpretation of scriptures. Uh, now, when I say somebody interpret the scriptures, that means, you know, we, I find people kind of uh, having taught and wrote the course. Uh, it, uh, I find people usually take that word interpretation and think that it means something that it doesn't mean. They try to interpret it. But, you know, when we say about interpreting, we're saying, hey, what does it actually mean? Now, let me give you a couple of examples. If you asked a 14-year-old boy uh, and say, how's your dad? And he said, oh, he's sick. Now, I, if you understand 14-year-old boys and the, the culture in Australia, you've got to ask another question, haven't you, to get meaning. Do you really mean that he's ill or do you mean that he is great? <laughs> going well. I mean, it's it's you just got to ask some more questions, and very often, you know, we've got to do exactly the same thing in the Bible because this is two thousand years old, just the New Testament. You know, we've got it's over four thousand years uh, in the Old Testament, and things have changed. If you haven't no if, you've, if you've noticed, you know, I mean, they didn't have uh, the blessings we have: email, uh, Twitter. And, uh, you know, in fact, you know, it's only been uh, 500 years that the general populace in the Western world even can read. 
You know, they, they invented the printing press and still people couldn't read, the majority. The only people who could read in a town was the local priest. And he, was the, he became the interpreter of the scriptures for them. Uh, but, you know, we can all read. You know, we've got a great education. I like those bumper bus stickers that says, you know, if you can read, thank God for your teaching. Because that's the truth, isn't it? You know, it's a great privilege to be able to read. But, but with reading, you know, so, we, so when we, we need certain tools to read with, we, we use dictionaries. You know, if you're studying English, we, we use uh, background books. And so in theology, biblical backgrounds, because we've got to say, because things mean differently when it was said then than it does now. So language changes, culture changes, and, and you interpret things differently. I remember um, when I was in India, a pastor holding your hand, walking down the street, would be normal for him. Now, for an Aussie, if a pastor holds your hand, walks down the street, you're going to have some two, uh, some great uh, reservations and questions and, and some issues there. Now, he doesn't understand our culture, uh, but uh, I remember one of our pastors, he had a, a prophet uh, person there, and he was an Indian uh, from Malaysia, and... Uh, he, he nudged his wife who's next to him and he pointed over and, 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 and the prophet has got his hand on his, the top of his leg here. Now, you can consider he was extremely uncomfortable, but this was natural. He was, he was trying to say the words like, I love you, you know, without any other meaning to that word love. But, of course, if, uh, if someone puts their hand on the top of my leg, it's going to be, uh, I love you, but <laughs> there's, other, there's, ex, there's other things on it, isn't there? We would have another connotation to it. You know, it's culture. I can remember the first time I walked down Indian Street and all these boys, there's six of them, they're all walking down the street holding hands. I thought, how weird is that? I mean, you don't walk down Australian streets and see six boys holding hands. You might see six girls holding hands, but not six boys. So culture changes. You know, attitude to women, things like that. So we've got to sometimes get into the background and say, hey, what are they saying? You know, what, what are they actually saying? And, and I've got to sometimes look a little bit deeper to get the, the correct understanding and meaning, which is what interpretation is. It's just getting understanding. So I'm going to give some thoughts about if we're going to live like Christ, you know, how do I interpret a, um, a passage of Scripture, particularly a, a biblical narrative? And so uh, underneath the, the concept of hermeneutics, we would have, how's my time going? I'm going to do, uh, uh, which will take me 12 weeks to do uh, in the next 15 minutes. So it'll be a challenge. So it'll, it'll, so it'll be only a very broad overview, but hopefully I'll give you some, some concepts. So the first thing uh, of hermeneutics of is observation. Now, we've got to observe the passage. We, we have the habit of reading the Bible without... Uh, and if you're a speed reader, and, and sometimes we have, we have the habit of reading the Bible through and we've got to read you know, five long chapters today. And, and so that will take us quite a bit of time because they're so long and we tend to hurry things. But sometimes you've just got to mull things over. The technical word for that is meditate. Just got to think it through. Take it a bit slower. So, so you've got to observe. Now, when you have... <coughs> In any writing, and if you would do basic journalism, as my wife was a cadet journalist when I met her, and uh, you know every every newspaper article had to they did what they call the five journalistic questions: who, you know, who are the people involved? This is a car accident, you know, that she was reporting on. She, who are the people involved? You know, what were they doing? 
Were they walking across the street and got hit? Or, you know, so what's important? You know, who, what, when? When did it happen? It happened on Friday at 10 o'clock. Now, where? It happened on, you know, such and such corner of streets. You know, why did it happen? Because you know, the guy was drunk or something rather. You know, there's, there's a whole story there. And when you build that story, and then, of course, we have the, the next question is how did it happen, you know? Uh, and, and that's what we call basic journalism. But that's also, whenever we read a pe- passage of Scripture, we've got to read it. And so, uh, and, and often when you read a, a narrative, we read it from my point. What does this mean to me? But I think before I can really understand what it means to me, it's sometimes good to... Uh, I sit there and, and in, in my imagination, I look at the story through... Well, Jesus' eyes. What was Jesus seeing in the story? What was all the people? What were they seeing? So we have something called uh, in life, uh, anthropologists call it uh, pretend. Now, I notice that every mother and every parent knows what pretend is. Their children pretend to be adults, don't they? And they do the funniest things. They play. And, and the beginning of any sophisticated knowledge starts with pretending. You know, you, you pretend you're that person. So, you know, I mean, kids pretend they're cowboys and Indians. They pretend, well, that's old school, of course. You know, but they pretend they're uh, mother, you know, nursing mothers, whatever. They, they pretend, don't they? But actually, we need to pretend. It's actually a, a part of being an anthropologist would say of, of learning society. You know, get in the look from their eyes. Like for instance, you know, if you were reading the Lord's Prayer, which I did recently, and uh, and of course the Lord's Prayer is Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Now I've I've prayed the Lord's Prayer for years and years and years. Uh, you know, I understand the Lord's Prayer. It's really basic to prayer. It's fundamental. You've just got to know the Lord's Prayer. But uh, so I, I decided to pretend I was Jesus. Now, you know, that takes a lot of doing. Some people say, Jesus, Peter, you've got a lot. You know, uh, for you, you and Jesus are just, you know, I know some of you think we're like that, you know. Uh, see me, you've seen Jesus. But I don't quite, quite think it like that. But to, so I was pretending I was Jesus. And I, was, and, and I was picturing myself, you know, uh, you know with the, the disciples around him. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, I wonder what Peter would hurt, would hurt here. I wonder what John would have heard and when they said this. And I was thinking the different people could have been sitting in the audience. And, but I just said, our father. And I didn't get any further, further than that because something struck me. Here's Jesus. He's saying that God is his father, but he's not talking about my father. Now, I've never seen this before. He's saying it's our father. It's Peter's father. It's my father. It's your father. It's our father. You know, the, the, and, and when I said it, there's kind of like even a, a sense of emotion of equality. Now, I'm not saying we are definitely equal to Jesus. I'm not trying to say that. But, you know, but we have the same father. That, and that is... I mean, it just it just touched my heart to think about that, for meditate that for a while. I didn't go past it for that day, so my Bible reading that day only had two verses in it. But I've meditated on from a week, on and off. There's a lot of other things I've done, but it's our Father. It's disciples. He's he's our Father. He's your Father. My Father. 
Jesus is saying, hey, he's my father, but he's, but he's yours as well. Well, that's an amazing thought, isn't it? That can change how you act and react. But that just comes out of, out, out of pretend. Imagining that I was Jesus for a while. And um, so imagination plays a huge thing. I believe uh, when we look at the Bible, not only do we ask these intellectual type questions, who, what, when, where and why, and we often write them down in a journal but I, I, and uh, a notebook, but I think what, what I like to do is, is sit there and say, you know, what did it, you know, were there any other things there? Because, uh, like, were there smells there? What would it smell like? I mean, could you imagine tabernacle slaying a bullock for your sin? You know, you've lined, you've lined up. I mean, that would be a smelly place, wouldn't it? Flies, or if it was Australia, they'd be, it'd be covered in flies. I mean, you know, it, it wouldn't be, a, it, it, it wasn't a pleasant place, the altar of sacrifice. And when you smell it, you know, uh, you know it's just, it's, it's, you know, places. I think one of the messages I remember Peter Geiser did um, so well, uh, and um, is he took one of the places in the Bible. And uh, Caesarea Philippi, who remembers that message we talked about going to Caesarea? And of course, Caesarea Philippi is, is right, you know, if Jerusalem is here, then Caesarea Philippi is right in the back room of that nation. It's a 120-mile walk, but Jesus takes his disciples on a 120-mile walk. And he takes them up to the mountain, and they're at Caesarea Philippi. And he mentions for the first time ever, the word church. He says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. What is the rock? The rock was Caesarea Philippi. Now, this was the place of the gods of the world. It was such an important spiritual place to foreign gods that everybody who was anybody visited it. When I say anybody was anybody, Mark Anthony. We've all heard of Mark Anthony, if you know of Cleopatra. He visited there. Why would he go to this obscure place where, you know, who's a soldier who's travelled the world, go to that place? It wasn't that it was prettier than anyone else, but it had a unique place that, that it was considered to be the place where, where gods dwelt, and particularly the god of Pan. And it was a place that was, it was a, there was a cave there that had a, that had a bottomless lake in it. And from that lake, then it rewarded the whole of Israel. The Jordan River flowed from that lake. So it, be, so it was known as a place of fertility, which is a god of pain. So people who wanted to be fertile, to be blessed, you know, to have, uh, you know, to have food and the crops and everything, would go to that place to worship that god. In fact, they would sacrifice children at that place. So this is not a nice place. I mean, Herod had, had built an altar and dedicated it, uh, a temple there, and dedicated it to Caesar, the current Caesar. So this wasn't just a place. We read it as Caesarea Philippi, but this was the spiritual place that Caesars had come to visit, where um, you know, foreign powers, you know, people take it, for instance, uh, uh, I've forgotten his name already, um, where, where uh, um, 
25-year-old who took the world. What's his name? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great visited Caesarea Philippi. So you realize this is just not a place. And Jesus mentioned on this place for the very first time the church. So he says, you know, upon this rock I'll build my church. You know, and of course we all get the thought of of Peter and the rock. You know, we're trying to say, what does he really mean here? And, And it's in this place he said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose shall be loosed. You know, we're, we're beginning to see the, the kingdom of God. You know, he said, I'll give you, Peter, he said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. And he said, this is the key. Peter, I'm giving it to you. you, you know, and he's saying, okay, upon this rock, you'll build your church. And the rock is not Philippi. Philippi. The rock, the rock is, is, is not him himself because his name is Rock, you know, because we've got all these thoughts going. But the actual meaning comes out of the place that he said, this is how you build. Whatever you bind shall be bound and where you loose. You know, we have the, par- the authority to break every devil and every foreign god and everything else that comes up- upon us. You know, that's your mission. What you bind shall be bound and what you loose. So this is the keys to build a kingdom. So he stood up there and said, this is the key. I mean, not only did he give them a verbal illustration, but he took them 120 miles to give them an emotional one. It's something they'll never forget. God himself standing before them, declaring how powerful verse is. Now, I guarantee that you will never read Matthew 16, verse 18, ever again without the thought, but I probably talked about this morning. How powerful that is. See, that comes by that doesn't come by just reading, it comes by meditation when you look and say, Hey, you know, what? What is this place? So you look at the persons, you look at the, the geography. Because sometimes geography, you know, some places are, you know, the geography, some places are, are just mentioned all the time. You can't read the the Psalms without seeing the word Zion. Continually, you know, they're worshiping Zion. So, you know, if you don't know that Zion is where the king lives, where David, you know, he took it from the enemy and that became his place. It was such a secure place. It was a place that was considered to be invincible because it was well watered. That they, 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 they was a fortress place. And so, you know, our worship is a place that when you worship God, it's an invincible place you put yourself into. It's a place of power. You know, so when we worship, you know, that we, we, we bring around the presence of God and we're living in Mount Zion, the city of the living God, it says in Hebrews. So that, so that repetition of that place that so you can go all the way through the Bible and see constantly, and you begin to form a picture of what that place is. It's just, you know, when we come to church and worship, we're just not having, you know, it's not Networks Church, we've come to Mount Zion and we've come to the citadel of our most God. We've come to a fortress. We've come to a place of protection. We've come where the enemy can't get at us. You know, that's why, you know, I mean, when I got saved, the, the, uh, one of the most, um, probably most popular book, at the time in the early charismatic movement, was Prison to Praise. Who's ever written Prison to Praise? If you've never written Prison to Praise, you should. Prison to, you know, till you, if, if you don't understand that, that praise will take you out of any prison, it'll change your life. I remember um, the head of the, at the time of Paradise Church there, Andrew Evans, his wife, she suffered uh, you know, uh, extreme depression as there were missionaries in... in um, in uh, what country was it now? It doesn't matter. Uh, Papua New Guinea, and and she, and she and she she got a hold of this book, 
and she began to just praise God. Instead of complaining about her, her lot, the issues that she was going through, that you could imagine being a, a missionary in Papua New Guinea uh, for a Western, you know, 50 years ago. But she began to practice this book and she said it changed her life. And they ended up with the biggest Assemblies of God church that they ever had in presence of the movement. Prison to praise, and that was what the story, that's the story about. People took this book, and that's why, you know, praise is not just great songs we sing anymore. You know, when we think of praise nowadays, we start to think of, oh, is that a Bethel song? Is, it, is that a Hillsong song? You know, who wrote that song? You know, we look on there, and, you know, you know what are the copyrights. When we praise, we're not just singing great songs. You know, we're praising God, and we're changing our heart, and we're lifting ourselves into Zion, the city of the living God where God lives, where God will speak to us and God will talk to us and will sense the presence of God. There's no better place. You know, we, we just simply go from, you know, a Father which art in heaven, we lift ourselves into heavenly places, see things and hear things that Paul would say he can't understand. See, that comes from, from study. You don't get those things by just reading. You get those things by meditation. You know, because there's something involved in meditation is, is the, when you meditate... You get alone with your thoughts, that after a while you begin to understand God's thoughts and your thoughts. It's quite a complex process of learning to hear the voice of God. And um, but when you say, but all of a sudden you realize, hey, this is not coming from me. You, know, you, you feel inspired. You feel some, you know quickened. You feel, hey, I wouldn't have thought of this. This is a this has just come from nowhere. This is a God thought. No, it's inspirational. And so as I begin to read my, read my Bible, you know, I, I, I get in this place where, where God begins to speak to me. And then it's quite amazing. If you meditate on something for long enough, there, very often you begin to dream it. God will begin to speak to you in, in the in night. And all of a sudden you wake up with a problem, a solution. And you go, I know what I better do. And, and you just know that you know that you know. That intuition that we look for and crave for, for breakthroughs. And we, are, we are people that are, need to be led by the Spirit. But the Spirit does, you know, and it starts with this word, because this word is breathed by the Spirit. And as I meditate upon the Spirit, then the Spirit begins to talk to me and we have conversations. And I'm, so I don't read the Bible, you've got to converse the Bible as well. Talk to God. You know, and, and, to talk to God, just, you know, you've got to pretend for a while to, till it becomes real, like a baby. They pretend, but one day the pretense goes and they'll be having language, won't they? I listen to Audrey and I can hear Audrey changing her babble. Like I can guarantee one thing, when she talks, we're all going to regret it because <laughs> she is not going to stop because she's going to follow the generations of three women in our family that have never stopped talking. Uh, we love them in spite of it, but uh, they're not here and it's not being recorded, so I'm safe. But uh, yeah, we, we, we have um, Justin and I and, and, and Michael, we just sit around at Christmas time and the girls are the talking, we just listen. You know, that's what happens when we get together there. You know, uh, 
two of them have uh, hearing impaired, therefore they shout louder than all the others, you know, <laughs> to make up for it. You, know, you try to say something, but someone's already beaten you to it. It's, it's, quite, it's quite a challenge in our family. You've got to be quick, you've got to be loud, and you've got to be bold. Uh, and that's what our women are. We've discovered that. So, you, woohoo, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, whenever you read in the Bible, you know, in the Psalms, you ever read that word, uh, Salah? You shouldn't read Salah, you should go, woohoo! Because <laughs> that's really what it means. You know, it takes a different meaning on, doesn't it? When you say, hey, you know, Salah, woohoo! Because <laughs> so every time you read, really go, woohoo! You know, and your Bible, you'll find your Bible reading of, of Psalms will change of just going, woohoo! Every time you see Salah. These are private things I don't talk about. <laughs> That's why you lock yourself away in your closet, you know, before someone locks you up. <laughs> but meditating. Because, you, know, you know, the thing that we've got to do with the Bible is not just read it, we've got to feel it. You know, in any conversation, you, you can't build a friendship with just words. I mean, you can't build a friendship just by talking, you can't build a friendship just by listening. Yeah, friendships are, uh, uh, but what connects a relationship is when you begin to feel. You know, Lindsay often asks me, you know, the, the things she often asks me, and, and um, I'm sure it's probably asked by every wife to every husband, but I don't know every wife and every husband, but I do know me that I'm not always connected when she talks to me. Uh, and, and she can be talking before I've actually connected, and then I find that she's asked a question and I'm in trouble. She's, she's learned to trap me up very easily. Doesn't take much skill, really. Uh, you know, I'm that dumb. But uh, you know, she'll ask, and I go, "No." And she says, "You haven't been listening to what I said." And then I've got to realize, and then I've got to get involved. And I was, you know, in the course, the worst thing I can do is portray my feelings. Yo, you're always picking on me. You know, <laughs> you always tell me that. You know, I can bring it down my level, but really, that's not the clever thing to do. The clever thing is to get on her level. And feel what she's feeling. Hey, you know, she's feeling, you know, not connected here. I've got to take that seriously. You know, and so I said, look, so I've got to apologize. Repentance is always a victorious position. Right? Uh, if you don't know what to do, repent. It's just that simple there. Doesn't matter where you think you're right or wrong, just repent. You know, it can never go wrong. You know, the easiest word in the language of Christi- of, of, of we have is I'm sorry. It's cheap, but it's but it's powerful. You know, it should be bang. look. I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. You know, admitted. You know, repent. Said, please tell me again. I really want to hear what you say. And then you've got to connect it. You can't. Then you've got to really say. You can't just go uh, say the right things. You've got to feel it and get and involved in it. And then you ask these more intelligent questions, which can be quite difficult for guys who haven't been thinking about it. But it's feeling. Now I'm talking from a guy's point of view. I'm sure a woman would say. I don't understand what you're going on about. You know, we always do this. You know? I think there's... But <clears throat> the question is not what guys and girls do. The question is, is, is how do we relate to God and the Holy Spirit? Because they're the led by the Spirit. They're the mature, grown-up sons of God. You know, at some stage, we've got to not pretend that we know God. <laughs> we've actually got to be our friend. The whole, the, one of the great concepts is John 16 and 17 when Jesus said, you know, to, to his father, he said, you know, we're a friend. 
we're more than just a father and son and a co-equal. But he said, and I brought these other people in so they could be your friend. What a great privilege we have as our father, which art in heaven. And we won't have an our father unless we talk to them. Because very many times our, our prayers can be just selfish. Yeah, um, I've noticed that being a father, your kids are always your kids. I've noticed that they always ask you for money. They always expect you to pay. Not always. Um, but a lot of time, I mean, not so much my son-in-laws, but my daughters do. That would be what I'm putting in. Uh, Derek does. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's like, uh, you'll go, oh, you'll pay, Dad. Uh, you know, he walks out and just assumes that, he's gonna, that I'm going to do it. And, and, I, I, and I love paying because that's what fathers do. Aren't they? Fathers like paying. I mean, I feel I feel good about paying. I don't feel bad. Justin's taking he's taking notes. He's started to take notes now. I notice for the first time. <laughs> but it's this it's this building of friendship with God, intimacy with God. You know, it starts when we really start to meditate, ask these questions, and, and emotionally connect. Connect with our smell, the sounds, the feelings. And it's amazing how much the Bible changed and how real God becomes. So if you want to know, get the first part of the message of Incarnation, I hope you come to the next service. But God bless you. Thank you very much for listening. I'm on time. And you've heard the end of a message for the first time that I've preached. So thank you.